Hello and welcome to Mount Vigil. I'm Anthony. And I'm Blaine. Today we're going to continue our conversation on Jesus and what he does to overcome the problems of sin, death, and spiritual oppression. And we're going to move on to talk about how he deals with the world, the flesh, and the devil. going to need you to tell our audience what's on your shirt. That's just kind of a, a non-ramp into this conversation. I'll uh, include a link or an image of this shirt on the show notes. It's, a, it's an icon designed by Jonathan Pajot, a French-Canadian philosopher. You might have heard of. He's like middle famous. Um, and this icon is basically an icon of everything. It's the whole story. It has death at the bottom, Jesus on the cross at the top, uh, and the tree with, with a serpent around it in the middle, countless other details. It's uh, a picture of the cosmos. That is theologically robust, dude. I'm seeing the the Keruvim and the gates of Eden. Eden is a walled garden. Here the chaos waters with the dragon um, you know, encircling yeah. from left to right. This is where some of the ideas that are reflected in the placement of temples in the region of Jerusalem begin to make sense. The idea that Adam was buried at the foot of Golgotha is actually for sure, ultimately and symbolically true, because he was buried at the foot of the mountain of God. And at Golgotha, this long-anticipated siege to the mountain of Bashan was made so that Zion, which had desired Bashan as its dwelling place, took it over, therefore making it Eden and the tree of life being restored in the <laughs> cross. It actually is one mountain, so the the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and everything that's there are in the right place, more or less. Thank you, Jonathan Pajot. Wow. I never thought about Adam being buried at the, the foot of the mountain of God. Is that in Genesis? That is a church tradition, a tradition okay. gem. Sweet. But let's keep it. We'll say that the other cue is never mind. We're gonna get derailed into. You've heard, of course, that Cain and Abel are surely offering their sacrifices at the gate of Eden because there is a through line of the Keruvim in the Holy of Holies over the Ark and the Keruvim who are at the gate and paradise being where God dwells. You can begin to kind of fill in some of the blanks, but the sacred geography of Genesis 4 helps a person understand what's actually going on in that story. And While we're getting derailed, I recently read a book called And Yet I Loved Jacob, amazing text. And he points out that the text uh, around Cain and Abel, the story leaves it open to interpretation that Cain and Abel could have been twins. And so now I picture them as identical twins, Cain simply coming out first um, and leaving it open to them being twins or not leaves us open to comparing them to Esau and Jacob and, uh, and other siblings. It's crazy. And so on and so forth. Wow. That sounds so good. Cain is going to come up when we talk about the world. But we're starting by talking about the problem of spiritual oppression. It's been a while since that show aired. Ant-Man, can you kind of summarize 
Let's, let's begin talking through the broad points of how spiritual oppression works in the biblical story. Spiritual oppression first enters into the story very early on in the garden, where, as we've described him, the snake, the seraph, the rebellious angel who wanted to be like the Most High God and was perhaps jealous of mankind being created, goes to the garden and tempts them away from their trust, their childlike position before Yahweh. And the falls continue. Uh, We get to the point of Nimrod and all of the people that he led building Babylon, the Tower of Babel, and uh, seeking to... Oh, man, I'm, I'm, I'm... I'm not ready to summarize this. I, I'm digging this, man. I feel like you're hitting the main points. <laughs> Wait, you want to keep that? I do. Well, the people build the Tower of Babel. They want to commune with the gods. They want to be like, uh, like the gods, ascend to join the council. They also use magic to manipulate the gods or attempt to. They worship other gods. And Yahweh, in his righteous judgment, divides the nations, divides their tongues, and separates them all out. And he disinherits them from himself and assigns them to the gods. The 70 nations, right, being a a shorthand for all the nations, um, are assigned to the lowercase g gods, the Elohim, the other powers of his divine council. And people uh, begin worshiping those gods and tempting them to rebel. And those gods um, tempt the people to worship them and they interact with each other to their mutual downfall. And now we have a problem. All of mankind are disinherited and separate from Yahweh and therefore doomed. This is a good summary with so many terrifying points. (laughs) 70 as a symbolic number that represents, among other things, everything. Very helpful. You heard us in an earlier show talk about the Deuteronomy 32 worldview where the Lord divided the nations according to the number of the sons of God. There's an interesting thing that for a while, the sons of God was translated the sons of Israel because there are 70 sons who end up going down to Egypt. And so that therefore, you know, that 70 being a representation of everyone, well, it still works because Israel is everyone in the story, and what God is going to do for them, he's going to do for the whole world. Nevertheless, the meaning one is that the 70 nations get divided. All the peoples of the world are allowed to have, in one sense, what they want, which is to serve and to live under the covering of a lower G God, of a lesser spirit. And then truncating a long conversation, both through the rebellion of spirits and through human rebellion, inviting in other rebellious spirits, humanity ends up in a situation where there are no people who are living under a good theocracy of a life-giving, all-powerful God, because there's only one of those. Mm. Interestingly, a point that I wanted to, I wanted to make two points at Babel from Genesis 11. First of all, you will only ever hear people talk about the Tower of Babel 
The phrase that's used in that story is a city and a tower over and over. And it's just relevant that they came together to build a city and a tower. And then when God saw the city and the tower that they were building, those two things go together in ways that we may unpack more in a bit. Or you may remember us talking about in terms of the role of empire in the story of God as an alternative strategy to living within the blessing of God. But the main thing I want to highlight here, you talk about the seraph in the garden. Something that I read, I'm trying to remember where, sorry listeners, just recently was that, so Ezekiel talks about the pride, Ezekiel 28 talks about the pride of the devil who, you know, became proud in the abundance of his splendor. And so, though he was a guardian cherub on the holy mountain, rebelled. Isaiah 14 exposes another element, which is, you know, the enemy's desire to ascend the mountain of God and to be God in the middle of the 70 thrones. One of the ways that the enemy tries to do that is by being God for people, by ruling in. And the, the ironic, terrible thing in the enemy inviting humanity to choose good and evil for itself is that he's actually the one choosing good and evil for them. So it's a very deep deception where they become the students, essentially, of this rebellious spirit rather than the students of God. And if you want to make that real graphic, if it's true that the design of Eden in Genesis 2 looks like a temple, that you have Eden, and inside Eden, a garden, and inside the garden, the place where the two trees are, these three layers that look like the outer court, inner court, and holy of holies, and then you have the tree of life standing in the holy of holies inside Eden, then that makes the rebellious gesture of eating the fruit a covenant meal that takes place where the altar would be in a temple in the Holy of Holies, only it's not a sacrifice offered and a meal held with God. It's eventually going to be replaced, by the way, if you're not all thinking of it right now. It becomes a covenant meal with a rebel angel. <laughs> so obviously humanity has a problem. <laughs> And as a side note, it's helpful to remind people, or maybe mention for the first time, that that's what sacrifices are, covenant meals. So the apple or fruit as a sacrifice, a communal meal with the seraph. That's a new one to me, but it totally checks out. It's one of those things that, while being brand new, is like inevitably obvious. It is. I owe that one to a Tim Mackey podcast where he pointed out that it was layered like a temple. Mm-hmm. And then I had just finished the book we met, mentioned last time, Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist, mm. which goes in depth to the priestly feast that took place with the showbread in the Holy of Holies that now we liturgically participate in when we take communion in the church. And I thought, wait a second. I agree that the Eden cosmic temple mountain is for sure laid out like a temple and that the trees are in the Holy of Holies and that they don't go away, that that theme stays. But if that's true, then it's not like 
Adam and Eve, don't do jumping jacks right here. This is the only command. And I love our boy C.S. Lewis. In Paralandra, he really misses this point where, <laughs> which I, by the way, I could not recommend that book highly enough, even though don't agree with his theology of the fall. Uh, it's so good. But he talks about the necessity of obedience, of a command that is given only for the sake of love, which I guess is true because it's a part of human free will. Mm. But the command is to only fellowship with God in his holy place. And so while the underlying thing is there of freedom requires choice, so there are commands that are not, uh, let's say, necessary to immediate survival, don't jump into that fire. It's also true that a covenant meal is a covenant meal. And so it's, it's not insignificant that the prohibition in Genesis 2 is don't eat that fruit over there. Footnote, especially when I'm not right here to serve you the bread of life. Mm. Hint, 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 hint. That's such a better story than the one I grew up with, which was... The tree was an arbitrary test. There had to be some opportunity to reject God. Otherwise, there's no freedom, and freedom is freedom given a very poorly thought out definition of the word is necessary for love. Otherwise, we'd be robots. So God gives them some way to break relationship with them, and it's kind of random. They could have he could have said, "Don't sit in that rock. Sit in that rock." Exactly. Uh, it's not arbitrary. Yeah, though. it's not arbitrary. <laughs> the patterns, the scriptures, the the fractal nature of the scriptures never cease to amaze me. And uh, my, appreci- my, my appreciation of that or getting inside into that just speeds up. And I'm kind of scared I'll, I'll never discover all, all of them. <laughs> but that's what a fractal is. You'll certainly never discover all of them. We skipped something important. So I, I did. Uh, we went from the seraph in the garden to the Tower of Babel. Uh, and another important soundbite to hit here and, and as we're summarizing the problem Spiritual oppression uh, has to do with the Nephilim, the giants, uh, Genesis 6, the sons of God desiring the daughters of man. This being an allusion to people doing uh, very evil practices in which they sought union with, uh, like embodiment with the gods, um, this resulting in uh, like a hybrid race of people mixed with like resulting from that union. And we believe that demons are the disembodied ghosts of those guys, of the <laughs> Nephilim. Unclean spirits in particular. Yeah. Demons really are, are like a, a pejorative for any rebellious spiritual power, actually. So you could call the gods, you could call the unclean spirits, etc. demons. But in this case, uh, the ones that wander around possessing people, etc. The unclean spirits are the disembodied ghosts of the Nephilim. And I know what that sounds like, but it makes sense. Again, if you're a nerd, go read On the Origin of Evil Spirits by, what's his name? I wanted to say Augie March, but that's a book by Saul Bellow. Um, I can't remember. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll throw it in the show notes. You want to know something really interesting about the Babel event? Just... Little historical nerd out that Archie Wright. It's, Archie Wright. That's pretty close that to Augie is, Marsh. Yeah, you were really close. Now that these conversations are less scripted, we can say stuff like this. One theory about where the Sumerians came from 
is that they were refugees from a catastrophic flood event in the region of the Persian Gulf. And something like this does happen where all of a sudden new technology shows up in the Mesopotamian region, shows up right between the Tigris and the Euphrates. And the, this is relevant because some scholars like Heiser think that the Genesis 6 Nephilim episode targets the entire world of demo- ancient world demonic sexual rituals and in particular, the really popular ones, like the Apkalu, who were the seven sages who gave, from the abundance of their generosity, secret information to ancient kings. Well, it's not really hard to see the through line on these things. I don't know if you've seen these guys, the fish counselors, but the Sumerian kings had these refugees from the flood who taught them the knowledge that the flood had destroyed. And in the Sumerian kings list, the very ancient kings, it lists their counselor. So it says, and it will say, this king, I'm trying to remember their names. I know their counselor's names because they're freaky deaky. (laughs) One of them is Uundaga. And they were all, you look at them and they're these half fish, half human, but, you know, dressed like emperors, and they have all the imagery of being a king. So you know you're dealing with some kind of ranking spirit thing. It also just happens to be half Leviathan chaos monster. And so why that's relevant is because the Nephilim do come up earlier. And there's not only in the Bible, but in the other ancient literature, kind of widespread agreement that the knowledge that the flood targeted was not completely destroyed because the war between God and rebellious spirits did not end at that moment. Mm -hmm. It entered a new phase, but there was something of a permutation where you have, okay, fine. You're not happy that we taught humans how to remake the human race according to the image of demons. Fine. Well, we will give that knowledge back to the ancient kings, and they're going to tell a story about it, of these wonderful creatures arriving, thank God they weren't killed in the flood, to restore the knowledge that that terrible almighty God tried to take away from humanity. (laughs) Prometheus. (laughs) Prometheus and Oppenheimer. (laughs) which we're so excited to to go see. I cannot wait for this movie. Oh, my gosh. Christopher Nolan is the man to tell that story. So fast-forwarding, we get to the New Testament, and we have problems. People are being possessed by demons. That's a thing. And then beyond those specific possession instances, uh, in general, humans experience spiritual oppression. Uh, Influence by rebellious spiritual powers, uh, fear, t- spiritual mental torture, uh, physical sickness, kind of all the things that, um, that we these days, I guess it, unless you're totally, you know, not uh, 
familiar with this kind of worldview, we might associate with spiritual oppression. Also, like the nations are oppressed. They're disinherited from Yahweh. They're, they, they're not in relationship with God. And the nations are at war with each other. And um, so much of the evil and destruction that we see around the world, we can not fully attribute to because mankind is uh, rebellious as well. But we can, uh, we can see the influence of spiritual oppression throughout basically every facet of human existence. Yes. And to remind ourselves how that problem was managed in the Old Testament, we told the story of Israel. Did you listen to the Israel episode? And we said that God's solution to the disinheritance of the nation and to spiritual oppression was to choose a covenant people to bring them back into relationship with himself so they could enjoy every good thing that comes from God. I mean, the picture in Eden, of Eden, paradise, in Genesis 1 and 2, is the site out of which flow the rivers that water the world. So the very life of the world flows from the throne of God, from the heart of God. It is a very good thing to live in a kingdom where the most high God, the triune God, is the king. Because his is a kingdom in which life yields life, yields more life. It's full of blessing. It's full of permissiveness. The problem with living in a kingdom that is ultimately held captive to a, the rebellious spirits is that they produce Death and death and more death. Pope John Paul II's line on this, which I may have said already, is you always know, is, here's a simple test to tell the difference. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of life. The world is a kingdom of death. You know you're in a kingdom of death if it views death as the solution to a problem. So, oh, you're pregnant? Kill the baby. Oh, there's, you know, there's something growing on those crops? Kill everything with these fertilizers and kill the ground too. Oh, you don't like the way your justice system is doing? Well, you should punish the other people and flip that around. And you go, oh, okay. If you want an example of this in pop culture, look at the moral of the story of The Good Place. If you watch that entire series, if you know where it ends, death is the ultimate way out. That's not how it is in the kingdom of God, right? So God had addressed this problem through Israel but not only was it a temporary solution, but by the end of the Old Testament, however you read it, the dream has been so lost. There's been so much human failure that there is no reconstituted people and the presence of God is not there living in the temple, flowing down through the city and blessing the whole world. There simply is no nation. So it should not surprise us that in, in, I don't know, every way, Jesus addresses the problem of spiritual oppression through the entirety of his work all the way up to the work of the church. So no particular order. What first? How does Jesus solve this problem, Anthony? The first thing on my mind here is less of a solution to the problem per se, but more of a context in which we can understand Jesus as the solution here. 
and I'm thinking about Jesus' baptism. I've been spending a lot of time recently studying and reading about the concept of election I mentioned, and, and yet I loved Jacob earlier, a book about that. And I've recently begun to see Jesus' baptism in the light of election and seeing Yahweh, seeing the Father, that is, uh, electing Jesus as his favored son, the one with like all the inheritance. And this is kind of recapitulating a whole theme, major theme throughout the Old Testament in that this is my beloved son. Do what he says. Listen to him. All the different versions of that statement in the Gospels. And so Jesus, the Father, declares that Jesus is the unique, one of a kind, favored, authority, you know, son, son granted authority. And the reason I'm bringing this up is that the gods are referred to as the sons of God throughout the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. And uh, it's important that Jesus is, while he's also <laughs> a son of God, he is the son of God. He is uh, obviously second person of the Trinity and first and foremost premier, more powerful than all of the others and um, the one on whom the Father, uh, in whom the Father delights, the one in whom he, he bestows authority over all the other powers. This is so good. We're, you're starting with fractals and meaning that part of the, what I'm hearing you say is that part of the solution to the, the problem of spiritual oppression is that Jesus is the entirety of Israel, the entirety of the people of God. Because he's the favored son who lives in such close relationship with the father that he only does what he sees the father doing. And so in him is the fullness of the kingdom of God. And one of the benefits of that is that life literally flows out of him. The woman with the issue of bleeding, everyone else who gets healed. There are, I think most people are at least familiar with the fascinating reversal to the direction of contamination that happens in the work of Christ, where up until the incarnation, holiness would get defiled by impurity. Jesus shows up and the arrow switches because you have a perfect dwelling place of God with man, himself the kingdom, uh, out of whom life flows and cleanses the world without itself being tainted. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> That's good. Yes. And also the very simple statement that Jesus is the most powerful, most high, authoritative son of God over all the other sons of God. Um, that he reigns supreme over the divine council. And this, you know, it's something that pretty much any Christian would be like, uh, I don't know what divine council is, but yeah, he's, he's Jesus. But it, it's important in the story, Jesus, you know, one of the sons of God uh, is actually God and the most high. And he, I'll just read Paul's words. In Ephesians chapter 1, the prayer for power, so the second half of chapter 1, Paul says, And what the extravagant glory of his power toward us who have faith in accord with the operation of the strength of his might, which he has enacted in the anointed, 
raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above every rule and authority and power and lordship, and every name being named not only in this age, but in that about to come. And he has ordered all things under his feet and has given him headship over all things in the assembly, which is his body, the plenitude of the one filling all in all. So this obviously gets ahead of, of, of where we are in the story, um, going from Jesus' baptism to his resurrection, which seals the deal on his victory over every rule, authority, power, lordship, which are different names for the ranks of spiritual powers. But even starting you know, out the gate at the, at the beginning of his ministry, he is identified as the favored son. And this has Im- import for our life in a world in which there are spiritual powers at loose. Yes. This is so good. I have some great Pope Benedict quotes, but I think we need to say a few things before those go. So one of our main points is that Jesus reigns supreme. Mm -hmm. Well, what does he reign over? The world, sure, all the nations, as well as the council in the demonic, propagandistic Bale cycle, the discovery of which I cannot say enough alarming things about. <laughs> and it's just usually, guys, common sense here. It's usually not a good idea to follow local spiritual rumors to, un- to discover the temple complex of a ransacked city and to open the sacred libraries and to read them. What have we done to the human race in terms of education, that that's not obvious. I've, uh, I've watched enough Indiana Jones to, to know better <laughs> you than just that. Go, I know. All you have to see is Raiders of the Lost Ark, and you know, mm, feels weird, probably shouldn't do it. Where'd you get these Where'd you get these books? In a grave. Who told you where it was? A genie. Mm, hard pass. <laughs> now, in the Bale cycle, it's Bale who has a weird relationship with their evil, most high God, El, who sits over the 70 thrones of the divine council. This is nonsense that is directly attacked in the entirety of the Old Testament narrative, where the enemy has no kingdom at all. It's one of the laughable things that's painful in the temptation of Christ, where the enemy says to Jesus, he takes him up Baal-Zephon, you know, the demonic mountain, and shows him the nation of the world. And he says, all of this has been given to me, which is not true. The enemy is not given anything. He tries to sit on the throne of God and the kingdom he gets is one lower than the earth to eat dust. But the bite in that claim is that another way to render the Greek word given is betrayed. All of this has been betrayed to me, which that part is true. Because human rebellion does actually, uh, in the story, incur, call in spiritual oppression. Jesus does not fail in his Eden in the wilderness. He does not fail in his wilderness wandering either. And he comes in, and a detail that I have come to love is, what does he do? Jesus crosses the Jordan again, boom, we said it's Israel coming in to conquer the promised land, and it's also Adam, had he not fallen, launching his mission to make the entire world Eden. He goes to uh, the temple, 
No, he goes to the synagogue, Eldridge. He announces his Isaiah 61 mission, and they try to kill him. And then he gets out of town, and he does a number of things just in a row that show exactly what he's doing. In Mark's gospel, they're, all, they're like less than a line apart. He casts out a demon, and he calls the twelve. And these two things work together to show, oh, this is game on. In Matthew, it calls, you're going to have to fact check me here, it might be Luke, uh, but you've been steeped in Matthew. It calls Capernaum the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, right? And that, then it gets into the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. Anyway, the New Testament writers want to make sure you notice, hey, he goes, when Jesus goes to kick out that foul spirit in the synagogue, he goes into the region that was the seat of Israel's rebellious spiritual problem. Those tribes were part of the rebellion of Jeroboam, and they were also the first two tribes to be destroyed by Assyria, uh, followed by the other eight in the course of a long war. And so he goes to ground zero of the dissolution of the nation and of the sort of demonic infiltration of the nation kicks out an unclean spirit, and calls the twelve. Both of which mean the time of the purification of the world is here, and a new nation is forming. It's going to have an architecture that lets people live inside the government of God. That's an awesome summary. To make sure that the point's not missed, because it was in my notes, so just before in Matthew 4, uh, where he goes to the region of Zebulun, Naphtali. He is in the desert being tempted for 40 days. And one of the things, just to say it very straightforwardly, Jesus does um, to overcome spiritual oppression, to overcome the devil, is he is faithful. He is faithful where people weren't. So Jesus goes out representing Israel in the, in the desert, Israel was there for 40 years. Jesus is there fasting for 40 days. The enemy during, you know, does that temptation, and Jesus is faithful to the Father. He's not led astray um, to try and get for himself what he should be receiving from the Father. So Jesus' faithfulness is one of the ways, one of the things we should put our hope in in the face of spiritual oppression. That's so good. I wonder how far we're going to make it today because that part is going to link forward to part of the strategy of the church in the book of Ephesians to actually resist spiritual oppression. Let's just see how far we get because... All right. Well, since we're here, I'm going to give you some Pope Benedict. And he has some wonderful lines from his book, Jesus of Nazareth, on what's happening in these two events and the formation of the Twelve and then the kicking out of foul spirits. So I'm going to give you foul spirits first. Here is Pope Benedict. Because the world is ruled by the powers of evil, this preaching is at the same time a struggle with those powers. Quote, in following Jesus, his herald has to exercise the world to establish a new form of life in the Holy Spirit that brings release to those who are possessed. As a German scholar whose name I'm not going to try to pronounce. And as Henry Lubach 
also probably said that wrong, in particular has shown the ancient world did in fact experience the birth of Christianity as a liberation from the fear of demons that, in spite of skepticism and enlightenment, was all pervasive. The same thing also happens today wherever Christianity replaces old tribal religions, transforming and integrating their positive elements into itself. We feel the full impact of this leap forward when Paul says, there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, in whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. These words imply a great liberating power the great exorcism that purifies the world. No matter how many gods may have been at large in the world, God is only one, and only one is Lord. If we belong to him, everything else loses its power, and it loses the allure of divinity. I'm going to go just a little further because this is where he gets to us late modern post-Enlightenment refugees. The world is now seen as something rational. It emerges from eternal reason— And this creative reason is the only true power over the world and in the world. Faith in the one God is the only thing that truly liberates the world and makes it rational. When faith is absent, the world only appears more rational. In reality, the indeterminable powers of chance now claim their due. Chaos theory takes its place alongside insight into the rational structure of the universe confronting man with obscurities that he cannot resolve that set limits to the world's rationality. To exercise the world, to establish it in the light of the ratio, reason, that comes from eternal creative reason and its saving goodness and refers back to it, that is a permanent central task of the messengers of Jesus Christ. Isn't that fantastic? Yes. I'm going to paraphrase because I don't want anyone to miss what he just (laughs) said there. The first part makes sense. The power of Jesus over rebellious spirits is an enormous relief. And for many, many centuries, people have experienced it that way. At the same time, we who are in a masquerading, rational, post-enlightenment world actually need our rationality, the story we tell ourselves about the world, to be exercised. And the way that that happens is having it winnowed by the story of God announced in Jesus. So someone becomes rational and becomes sane, sees things as they really are, when their reason has been shaped and molded to reality itself in the story of God. So we who live in the West may not feel our need right away, though many of us actually do, to claim God's saving power against rebellious spirits. But we certainly feel the ennui and the disillusionment and the depression of an oppressive rationality that needs to be purified. Hmm. I feel like that's a great mission statement for Mount Vigil. (laughs) Like participating in the winnowing of our rationality, the winnowing of our worldview. May it be so. Yes, God. Lord willing, in our own tiny, humble way, flawed way. You're welcome, Mom. (laughs) (laughs) Now, there's a little more to talk about. You hinted at the resurrection. 
And we said, Jesus is faithfulness. You give me a hand. I'm stopping. What do you want to say? So one of the events in the story of the Gospels that I wanted to hit and uh, as we survey like the ministry of Jesus, the earthly ministry of Jesus, we, we got all the way through him calling out the disciples and beginning that work. I wanted to call out a moment in Matthew 16 where Jesus takes the disciples to their northernmost point in that gospel, a place called uh, the regions of Caesarea Philippi. And this is an important moment in describing Jesus' victory over the um, rebellious spiritual powers and specifically what that means for the church. And I'll just read the verses. And Jesus, coming into the regions of Caesarea Philippi, questioned his disciples, saying, Who do men say the Son of Man is? And they said, While some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He says to them, But you, who do you say I am? And answering, Simon Peter said, You are the anointed, the Son of the living God. And in reply, Jesus said to him, Blissful are you, Simon bar Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but rather my Father in the heavens. And to you I also say you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my assembly, and the gates of Hades shall have no power against it. I shall give you the keys of the kingdom of the heavens, and whatever you bind on the earth will have been bound in the heavens, and whatever you unbind on the earth will have been unbound in the heavens. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he is the anointed. There's a lot going on here, but... A lot going yeah, on here. A lot going we on here. We could do an entire show yeah, we, on that we, scene. We should. So this is going to be woefully truncated, woefully abbreviated, but here's what's helpful to know. Caesarea Philippi was home to a pagan temple located at the mouth of a cave that was at the bottom of a hundred foot rock wall. And this site was originally home to Baal worship. Um, there were like ledges carved into this rock wall where statues of Pan, the fertility god, were. And it was a very dark place. Like unknown, evil, horrible things were done there. And there was a cave at the bottom of that rock wall that was called the Mouth of Hades. So a helpful thing, if your translators called it hell, shame on them. There's no term hell in the scriptures. There are, simple, there are images that the authors of the scriptures uh, give us that allude to places of death, judgment, and so on, like Gehenna. So in this case, it's Hades, which is the Greek term for the underworld. So they're standing there at the gates of hell, at the gates of Hades. And this place was called the Grotto of Pan at Caesarea Philippi. So Jesus takes the disciples to the gates of Hades, and he says that he is going to give them the keys of the kingdom of the heavens, and that the gates of Hades will have no power to withstand the ecclesia, the church, the assembly. So uh, right there, we have a wonderful summary of what Jesus does, specifically to empower the church to bring spiritual warfare against the kingdom of Hades, which would include spiritual oppression. It's so good. Let me say a few more things. Just that they're so that we're so on the money on this scene. So I'm gonna give you some observations that I'd read in Kenneth Bailey's book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. Cannot recommend that book highly enough. It's very expensive, by the way. So uh, IVP, if you could give us some kind of discount, um, but you won't. Jesus, you know, he's always doing more than one thing. And 
pulling together the threads of the story. A couple threads that come together here in the offensive war of the war on Hades, because as has been noted, people usually say, oh yeah, the gates of hell won't prevail in their war against the church. A gate is a defensive formation. So this is not defense, like the church is not on the defense here. The people of God, he goes, you guys have the keys to the kingdom. And as you take out the kingdom of God, three things I want to point out. The first is that Jesus is referencing a messianic prophecy that comes from Isaiah. I'm going to give you the whole thing because it's fascinating. It goes like this. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule the people in Jerusalem. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol we have an agreement. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, it will not come to us. For we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He who believes in it will not be shaken. And I will make justice the line and righteousness the plummet. And hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and waters will overwhelm the shelter. Then your covenant with death will be annulled and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, you will not be beaten down. Mm, Praise God. All right. Do you see what's going on here? So that language, justice the, the line and righteousness the plummet, he's talking about laying in Zion the foundation of a new building dare I say, a temple, a dwelling place of God. Now, by Jesus' time, the Jews really wanted to know what that stone was. The Essenes at Qumran thought it was a council of a certain number, irrelevant. There's probably 12. should look. Anyway, it was going to be a council of tested sages, and their quote was, when these are in Israel, it shall be the tried wall, the pressure, precious cornerstone whose foundation shall neither rock nor sway in place. It's like, if we can get the right people with the right minds in the job, we'll have a sure foundation for the nation of Israel. Good try, but no. Uh, I can see how you got there. Probably would have been an Essene or a Pharisee. You would have been an Essene. <laughs> uh, and an Essenoi. These other things... Uh, Other people had their own ideas about it. There was a raised stone in the Holy of Holies that the Jews had started to call the foundation. And it was where, uh, get this, for the Jew of the second temple, the center of the Holy of Holies with its raised stone was the most sacred spot in the world. And that stone was in Zion at the center of the temple complex. Later Jewish reflection decided that the whole world was created from that sacred stone which was itself the foot of the mountain of God. Now, again, you're not wrong. And you do kind of see the whole world being created through Christ, by the whole Holy Trinity through Christ, uh, kind of getting preserved out of Proverbs into that tradition. And then one other thing to name is that whole keys to the kingdom, something I learned recently. Yes, you have an administrative underlying there. So in the kingdom books, especially in the negotiation with Sennacherib, um, Eliakim is the secretary. There's a royal house steward. 
who has the keys to the house of David. And Isaiah says to him, you shall have the keys to the kingdom, which is the designation of royal authority. The keys of the kingdom was also a nickname for Mishnah and the interpretation. And Jesus calls it that same thing. Um, you guys have shut the gate of the kingdom. You've taken away the keys to the kingdom. He says that to the scribes. Mm. And referencing a tradition where the ability to rightly divide the word of truth and therefore, like Adam in the Garden of Eden, rightly identify God's plan for the world and call it out, had been consolidated into an elite class that was hiding it from the people. And so these two offices of Adam, priestly and kingly, both get reflected in that thing to Peter. Now, the big annoying debate there of did he just make Peter the Pope? Was he was his finger on his own <laughs> chest when he said this stone? Was it Peter's confession? I just say probably all of those things it's happening. Def- it's definitely all of those uh, things. I want I want uh, this to be known by everyone that hears this. What is the rock? Upon this rock I will build my ecclesia, my assembly, my church. The rock is the rock that they're at, and it's a statement of of warfare, spiritual warfare, and what warfare and taking back territory. Right. right? The supremacy so, of the mountain yes. of God over the mountain of demons. Exactly. On this rock, I'm going to build my thing. And then, yes, Peter is Petros. Peter represents the apostles. And so uh, we're not going to say it's Peter being established as the Pope, but it is on the foundation of the teaching of the apostles that he will build uh, his ecclesia, his Which church. Which Paul picks up on when he calls a holy priesthood in a living temple. Yes, exactly. And then... Uh, of course, the ultimate fulfillment of upon this rock is Jesus referring to himself. He is the rock upon which the, the church is built. Because he calls himself that repeatedly and says, the one who builds his house upon the rock. It's, it's D all of the above. Yes. <laughs> and it's D all of the above because those are the major pieces of the victory in the spiritual war. You need a nation of temple priests, reconstituted humanity. You need a cosmic king, and you need to be certain that it, it, that it has authority over hell, over death, and over the demonic epicenters of the world, that it can actually go in, purify them, and bring the kingdom of God there. And sure. you, you need a divine council that can administrate God's creation, and that's the church. Now that we're down to one listener, uh, (laughs) what do we, what is important to say? Certainly, we're not going to talk about the world or the flesh, but we did have a third Jesus episode planned out because a major part of how the issue of spiritual oppression gets addressed is through the ongoing work of the church and all of the things that it does through the life of the community that makes God known. So what do you want to say? Let's wrap up with a quote from Andrew Stephen Damick from his book, Arise, O God. I honestly don't think it's the most beautifully written book, but I admire it for his simplicity, his clarity, his straightforwardness, and summarizing the ministry of Jesus specifically in regard to the spiritual powers. So it's a bit of a longer quote. Here we go. In the aftermath of Babel, mankind was subjected to rule by demons, expressed and reinforced especially through idolatry, the worship of fallen angels. Participating in demonic activity puts you in communion with demons, and that makes you more like them. 
The most obvious way to participate with demons is through idolatry, in which sacrifices are offered to demons, then eaten by worshippers. This shared meal is an act of communion, full circle to the apple in the garden. This shared meal is an act of communion, which makes the demon part of your community and gives him influence over your life. No Christian in the ancient world regarded these rituals as fake. They understood that they worked. They put you in communion with your God. This dynamic also works even through less obviously religious worship, that is, by sacrificing to the passions that are always inflamed through demonic activity. So, while someone of our own day might not be offering up animal or other food sacrifices to Aphrodite, he might be sacrificing his time, possessions, relationships, and so forth in pursuit of physical beauty, or he might not worship Loki, but he might he will make sacrifices in his life to torment others. Other sacrifices might be to gluttony, wrath, power, and so on. Such sacrifices have an effect similar to that of putting a slaughtered bull on an altar to Zeus. Likewise, any sinful activity is participation with demons. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. 1 John 3 eight. And even one's desires are bound up with the devil if one is associated with him. John 8.44 Under the Old Covenant, the domination of the nations by demons was managed by the creation of a new nation, Israel. But that did not end the problem, for Israel was tempted to idolatry many times and fell into it. The demons had, been, had to be driven out once and for all. We can therefore see why a major aspect of Jesus' ministry was exorcism, the casting out of demons. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil, 1 John 3, 8. Destroying the devil's works is not just one of the things Jesus did, but is the very purpose of his manifestation on earth. That's the one statement I'd qualify, but it's one of the, one of the core purposes at the least. Moving on. Therefore, the exorcisms Jesus performed in his time on earth were not a mere sideshow to demonstrate his power or an ad hoc fix for people's bodily ailments. Driving out demons was core to his mission. He had come to reclaim the world for God's kingdom. So it makes sense that he would spend time driving out the oppressors and false rulers. So good. Now, sometimes we pray for our friends at the end of these episodes. This week, I want to make a recommendation and tell you where we're going. Because a lot of how this gets walked out, how we appropriate, take advantage of the freedom over death, the freedom over spiritual powers, the freedom over sin, uh, gets worked out in the phenomenon of apprenticeship to Christ and participation in his body, which is why we're not talking about communion and koinonia and all those good things yet, but we will go there. I think that in particular, you know, that's a wonderful summary by Damick. If any of this is landing as more than interesting, as a kind of, wow, wait a second, uh, what about my life? The great thing is that the, it is the fear that Jesus addresses first by being himself the central character of the story. So my simple recommendation, if you're kind of wondering before we have the conversation, what do I do with all this, is to ask your Lord, Jesus, that same question. What have you provided that I can take advantage of? What do you want to call to mind? What conversations, spiritual disciplines, chance encounters with uh, other people that follow Jesus? Do you want to provide to help me navigate a response to 
the exorcism of rationality, the exorcism of the world. There, there are actually action items out of these conversations that the people of God have always viewed as very pressing. But they are empowered and directed by Jesus. So before we talk about them, just ask him, uh, what do you want me to do to live more free from sin, death, and spiritual oppression? He will tell you. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you.